Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we will begin reading at verse 33 for our Old Testament reading today. Psalm 119, verses 33 through 40, and then we will go to our sermon text in Matthew chapter 5. Psalm 119, verse 33, page 958, for using the Pew Bible in front of you. This is God's holy word. He gives it to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Teach me, O Lord, to follow your decrees. Then I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. Preserve my life in your righteousness. Amen. And then, if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, our sermon text this morning. I had intended to preach on verses 6 and 7. And it became clear that that wasn't going to work. So just verse 6 this morning. Just verse 6. So we're slowing down even more as we go through the Beatitudes. Just verse 6, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. We'll begin in verse 3 and read those first three Beatitudes. And then the fourth will be our sermon text for this morning. Uh, Let us hear once again God's holy and inspired word. For the grass withers and the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In today's text. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us bow in prayer once more. Merciful God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. For your Son's sake. Amen. I had the opportunity in my college years to go to South Africa a couple of times with members of my football team to connect with a missionary who was there in South Africa who had played um, football where I did at at Wheaton College. And the second time I was able to go, I was able to have a very unique experience of riding on horseback through something of a wild game park in South Africa. 
And we, as we were, we're all very excited about this, probably 15 of us who had come from the Chicago area all the way to South Africa, and we had had about 10 days of working at an orphanage there, and then we had a couple days to sort of do some other activities in, in the country. So we're going to the stables uh, to pick out our horses. We found out, uh, I don't know much about these kinds of things, it seems the horses were a little bit smaller than what you would expect to find in America. And we found out that some of our, uh, uh, the bigger members of our crew, some of the offensive and defensive linemen, uh, were not going to be able to ride on the horses. The owner said, there's no way I'm not putting any of you uh, bigger guys on my horses. And so you can imagine how maybe college boys, uh, college athletes might handle this, which is, not, which is to say not too well. Uh, we gloated, some of the slighter guys, we gloated over the bigger ones, basically saying, we're going to have an awesome day. Sorry that you have to miss out on it. Um, and it was quite, a, quite an experience. I remember riding on a horse just a stone's throw from giraffes who were running and impalas leaping and zebras snacking and even a sleeping rhino. I found out later that I got much too close to it and put myself in, uh, in some danger because there was no way that my horse would have been able to, to run away if he got angry enough. Uh, but as you might have guessed, these stories often go, those who did not get to go on the horseback actually may have had the neater experience. They were riding around in a truck bed with one of the rangers, and we were, there's sort of different sections of these game parks, and we, as you probably could have guessed, did not go on horseback into the sections that had the lions. Uh, But these guys got to go there. And it actually was feeding day. And if you know anything about these wild game parks, uh, right after lions feed, they'll sleep for a few days mostly. There'll be almost no activity. And then as you get closer and closer to feeding day, their activity increases. Their hunger causes them to be worked up almost into a frenzy. And so the day before they feed and and feeding day, they're they're as active as they will ever be. And they're obviously, you throw these huge slabs slabs of meat uh, over towards them and they just go crazy and gorge themselves on it. The idea is here is that hunger causes movement. Hunger causes activity. And if you have the chance to see a great animal like a lion eat when he is hungry, it is a truly amazing sight, as long as you're not the one in his sights. When you are hungry, you move to satisfy your hunger. You take action, and if you find what you need, satisfaction is not very far away. Thirst is not much different. You remember probably uh, playing as a kid outside in the hot summer sun, and you play for a little bit too long, you get a little bit too thirsty, you sort of barge through the door, you're looking for anything that's cold and wet to guzzle it down. I usually, as a kid, would run into the room and uh, steal mom's sweet tea that was always sitting on the counter. Hunger and thirst come out of a place of want and need. You don't have something. You don't have food in your stomach, so you want it. You, don't have, you haven't had anything to drink, and so your throat is parched, so you move to go and find something. Jesus tells us that spiritual life in his kingdom depends on these categories of hunger and thirst as they function, not physically, but spiritually. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And if we remember the first three Beatitudes, what are they often dealing with? They're dealing with emptiness. 
that there is something that we lack. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who look inward and see that they don't have everything that they need. Knowledge of that emptiness, knowledge of that, uh, that spiritual bankruptcy drives us to Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life, who is living water for our souls. And as we come to Christ... There's, there's an ongoing effect that we grow in our appetite for true spiritual things. We develop a taste for the things of God. Many of you can probably remember uh, when you were in younger years, you, you maybe didn't like something, and then as you grew up, you did. When I was a kid, that was mushrooms. I could never eat mushrooms, and now I love them. So, children, if that's where you are, don't worry. Maybe one day you will like mushrooms, get it on your pizza or whatever. We develop a taste for things, and that is true spiritually. As we abide in Christ and as we live in his kingdom, we develop a taste for the things of God. We become aware that we are hungry and that we need him more and more. And all of this is glorious because it drives us away from the self. The false hope of so much modern thinking in the world that you will encounter in your life is that it's a vicious cycle of looking inward, of trying to find hope, of trying to find the answers within yourself. The glorious news of the gospel is that hope is outside of you. It's external to you. It's found in Jesus Christ, who is himself righteousness and life, the one for whom we hunger and thirst. So we're delivered from self. We are renovated from self. There's a renovation that happens after our deliverance. And then we live in the hope that one day we will not find ourselves. That is not the Christian hope. Not that we would find ourselves one day, but that we would see our king. Not that we would find ourselves, but that we would see Jesus. So first, the deliverance from the self. The first three Beatitudes, as we said, put this idea of spiritual bankruptcy or hopelessness front and center. The kingdom of God belongs to those who recognize that all they can come with are empty hands. That's all we have to bring before God. If we try to bring anything, our accomplishments, we try to bring uh, our zeal, If we try to bring anything at all, it will not do. God demands that we come with a poverty of spirits, with a spiritual humility. As I mentioned, modern thinking is a a vicious cycle of always being curved in on itself, always looking inward and towards the self. And you can never be freed from those shackles that it creates because it constantly goes back to the self. It's important to recognize the ways in which Christian hope, the Christian gospel, and Christian redemption clearly diverges from worldly hope at this point. There are, in this world today, there are books, there are spiritual practices, there are conferences, there are multiple billion dollar industries built around the principles of teaching you to believe that when you look inward and you think you find hopelessness, you think you find a need for salvation, what you are actually seeing is just, or what you are confronted with is an inability to believe in the goodness of yourself. Train yourself to truly believe that you are not as bad as you seem. That there is a goodness there that you can find in and of yourself. You feel a certain way, or that you would like to be a certain way. You can pay large amounts of money to have people tell you that whatever you feel is right, whatever you feel is good, and whatever you feel is 
okay and you ought to pursue that. You can pay more money to have your life and your body even conform to these feelings. And you can even go to court if you are offended. People refuse to acquiesce to the reality that you are attempting to create around you. You're called the wrong thing and you can sue. Someone neglects to make something for your wedding because of a moral conviction, you can sue and put them out of business. We should recognize what this, all, what this is all about. We can't blame people for trying to experience good feelings, for trying to be happy. Everyone wants to be happy. It's a great part of the American dream, right? In our land, there's the great principle. There are the inalienable rights of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But in our world today, there's this maniacal pursuit to try to be happy, to be satisfied, to be content. If we were to put it in kind of a modern day beatitude, we'd say happy are those who hunger and thirst after happiness. You will be happy if you seek that which makes you happy. But that's not what Jesus says. Blessed, that is happy or They will possess indestructible joy who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The thinking of Christ's kingdom cuts against this worldly thinking. If you try to find happiness through what you think would make you happy, you look inward, well, what would make me happy? And then you pursue that. What will be the map that you always follow? It will be yourself. It will be following the leadings of your own heart. But return to the the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Where is our starting place? Where do we start? Spiritual bankruptcy, hopelessness in self, and an empty hand. We said last week that everything in the Sermon on the Mount, nothing that we find there is a natural quality. It can only come about through God's grace. We can only receive it by God's grace. And because of that, We ought to distrust ourselves. We distrust our own ability to produce any of these things on our own. We return to that famous passage that should never be far from our minds. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. And it is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart deceives The human heart deceives. And if you trust this verse, why would you try to shape your life? Why would you try to shape your reality around things that you primarily find in your own heart? Your heart is a faulty guide. It will lead you astray if you trust it. In the face of the human heart, we have God's word, which is not a faulty guide. It is a trustworthy guide. We're using Psalm 119 as a bit of a a backdrop to understanding the Sermon on the Mount, the righteousness that God creates. Listen to how Psalm 119 opens. Blessed, so here we have kind of an Old Testament beatitude. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. What is it that leads to blessedness? What is it that leads to joy? It's righteousness. Righteousness is the complete satisfaction of our spiritual need. There is a need that we have 
For those who are created in the image of God, there is a need that we have for righteousness. In fact, we were made for righteousness. And when we live according to God's righteousness, there's there's an agreement that we have with God's created order. When we live righteously, it's as if we were handed a violin and given a seat in a symphony and we just sort of join in a song that's already going on and we're perfectly in tune and perfectly with the tempo and we know the peace and we add to the beauty of the peace. That's what it means to live righteously. But knowing that, knowing that you were made for righteousness, knowing that you will be blessed if you achieve some kind of a righteousness, that does not actually solve your problem, does it? Think of the hopelessness of a worldly false gospel always being curved in on yourself, always looking inward for hope or for redemption. Well, if we say, well, blessed is the one whose way is blameless, we ought to look in ourselves, and is that what we find? Well, no, of course not. Our way is not blameless. Blessed are those who walk in the law of the Lord. Well, maybe sometimes, but not perfectly. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. Well, maybe here or there with God's help, but it is not a perfect thing, is it? Martin Luther was locked in this exact battle. He went to God's word and he read this. What will make you blessed? What will make you pleasing before God? What will give you happiness and Uh, indestructible joy, it will be righteousness. But the more he looked inward, the more he despaired. He considered the phrase, the righteousness of God, and to him that was a heavy weight around his neck because he believed what that meant is that God will judge the world by his righteous standard, his perfect standard of righteousness, a test that he could never hope to pass and that none of us could ever hope to pass, no matter how much of a faithful monk he was. No matter how faithful we believe we can be, we cannot pass that test. And so this filled him with despair. It brought him to his famous tower experience. He's pondering the righteousness of God in Romans. And then uh, he ponders that verse. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And this is what he writes. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. There I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. It also is connected, of course, to Romans 3, verse 21, where Paul ends his, sort of, his case of universal condemnation. Who can boast before God? No one. Who is righteous before God? No one. Everyone's sinful. So what does he say? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The gospel is so glorious. The gospel cuts against worldly thinking because the very righteousness which God demands from us, from his creatures, is that righteousness which he provides 
in Jesus Christ. So to return to the words of Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is glorious truth because the gospel of the kingdom is about grace. It begins with grace. And God, as a gift, gives us that for which we ought to long, that which we so desperately need, righteousness. It's to be delivered from self. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Look inside. Do you find what God would require? No. And so what is the solution? To look further inward? To wait for the hope to appear within yourself? No. The solution is to be delivered from yourself. To find a savior who dwells outside of you. To find what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness given to us by grace and through faith. There is, there is nothing that would sound better to someone who believes those first beatitudes. Righteousness given through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel. In the, the shadow of your spiritual bankruptcy, God gives you all that you lack. The question is, are you convinced of your spiritual need enough to where you hunger and you thirst after this gift of righteousness? Thomas Watson says this, we are not bid to bring any merits that other traditions would do. There he's speaking mainly of Roman Catholicism. We could add to that Eastern Orthodoxy, that we bring some kind of merit before God. We're not commanded to bring a sum of money to purchase righteousness. Rich men would be loath to, to do that. All that is required to bring is an appetite. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness. We are only to hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is equal and reasonable. God does not require rivers of oil, but sighs and tears. The invitation of the gospel is free. If a friend invites guests to his table, he does not expect that they should bring money to pay for their dinner. Only come with an appetite. So says God, it is not penance, pilgrimage, self-righteousness I require. Only bring a stomach. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. It is not penance. It is not a, a set list of religious duties that we must do to prove our righteousness. It is not pilgrimage. You cannot go on a journey to achieve this righteousness. It is not self-righteousness. It is not what you can say, God, look at what I have done. Hunger and thirst after the righteousness that comes in Jesus Christ. And look around. What is often in your heart? What is often in the heart of those in the world? Is it a hunger and thirst after righteousness? Or is there a hunger and a thirst after sin, sinfulness, and rebellion? It's a symptom of pride, those who do not see their need for righteousness. Pride is like that bloated feeling that you have when you've eaten too much food that is probably unhealthy. And you sort of push the plate away and you say something to the effect of, I, I can't have another bite and I don't know if I ever want to eat again. That's what pride does. It makes us feel bloated to where you, you feel like you can't take another bite of anything. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Proverbs 29, one's pride will bring him low. He, he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Right knowledge of yourself means that you will have spiritual hunger. And spiritual hunger means that you will run to the place where that hunger will be satisfied. When my lovely, wonderful wife finishes uh, dinner, gets it all ready, it's on the table, maybe I'm downstairs in the basement with the kids, and she says, it's time to eat, 
And uh, I would say that she has three kids fumbling up the stairs to get to the table, but it's more like four, right? If dad's hungry too, I'm trying to beat the other three kids to the table. We are running to the table because we are hungry, and we want that hunger to be satisfied. So the true test of a spiritual appetite is this. Do you run to Christ at the announcement of the gospel? Does your heart sing with thankfulness to hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but of everlasting life? Does that ring in your ear? Does that resound in your heart? Because you are so convinced that this is the only way that you ever could have been reconciled to God. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Isaiah 55 Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Come, have what you need. Bring an empty hand. But satisfaction, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It does not stop there. Indeed, it cannot stop there. Righteousness is the complete satisfaction of our spiritual need. Our need is to be freed from sin. We were made for righteousness. That Thus, what we need is also to be free from the curse of sin and the power of sin. We need to be free even from the threat of of indwelling sin, need to be set free from all of those things. Our catechism says, in Christ we are set free not only from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin. What we have through the grace of the gospel, what we have in what theologians call our justification, by faith we're forgiven, we're declared righteous, it's something that cannot be reversed, to be placed in Christ. How unfitting would it be to accept righteousness which is imputed to us. And that's what happens in our justification. It's granted freely. It's, it's, it's put into our accounts. The way you can think about it, like a bank account. How unfitting would it be to accept righteousness which is imputed and reject righteousness which is imparted. Reject righteousness that God creates in us through those who abide in Christ. We say, well, I'll take the fire insurance, God. You know, getting into heaven with, uh, for absolutely free, that sounds pretty good. But I, I, th- I think I'm good with my life. The kind of the way I'm living, creating the life that I want to live, I'm good with that. So I'll take the fire insurance, but I, I don't want anything else. I don't want to have the growth. You see, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for it in all facets. It is wanting a righteousness of position. Believe in Christ, you'll be set free. But it's also a hungering and a thirsting of a righteousness of possession, of vital possession. Righteousness of position in Christ by faith. A righteousness of possession. And we call that uh, the process of sanctification. That which the Spirit brings about in our lives by the power of God's word and what Christ gives to us, this ongoing benefit of the bread of life and the spirit creates in our lives, the fruits of the spirit, the virtues of the Christian life. If we hunger after righteousness, it's not just that which comes through justification, 
though that is obviously a glorious thing. It is that which we experience as God actually conforms us to the image of Christ because we understand we were made for righteousness. Biblical commands say, walk according to the manner in which he walked. Right, walk. There's a a vitality to it. There's an ongoing nature. The Christian life is is a life. It's not a moment. It's a life lived unto the glory of God and in conformity with his commandments. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Listen to what we read in Psalm 119. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And create a desire in me for these things. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways, the ways of God, walking along the path. Psalm 119, verse 40, the end of our Old Testament reading. Behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. J.I. Packer says, We are only living truly human lives just so far as we are laboring to keep God's commandments no further. What does it mean to be human? To hunger and thirst after righteousness. A righteousness of position and a righteousness of possession. Return to Jesus' picture of hunger and thirst. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It cannot stop simply with the recognition that the gospel is true. We are to hunger and thirst that our lives will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Listen to Philippians 1, verse 9. Paul says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Growth. With knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. There's a purity and a blamelessness that is connected to the day of judgment because of what God does in our lives. We are saved by grace alone, through faith. But the faith that saves is never alone. To have this hunger and this thirst is to be blessed to see God's work in you, to create what the Bible calls the fruit of righteousness. So here are a few tests to examine your own spiritual appetite for righteousness. What occupies your thoughts? What shapes your goals? To what do you devote your time? Psalm 119, verse 20 says this, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. The psalmist there desires righteousness. So what occupies your thoughts? Glory of God? His righteousness? The glory of the Savior? The love that you have for him? What shapes your goals? Do you want to honor God in all that you do? Is that what you are most concerned with? To what do you devote your time? It's not to say that every single thing that you do needs to have its primary concern to be growing in your knowledge or anything like that. But everything that you do ought to be oriented towards the glory of God in a way that is fitting because you are longing and thirsting and hungering for righteousness. Second, do you go where you can expect to find growth and righteousness? Do you put yourself in the way of growing in righteousness? So do you go to God's word regularly, expecting that it is through that, as you read the scriptures, by the illumination and the work of the Holy Spirit, you will grow in righteousness? Psalm 119, verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servants that I may live and keep your word. If you live truly according to a suspicion of yourself, 
The deceitfulness of the human heart is a faulty guide. Do you then fill your mind, do you fill your heart with the truth that can renew your mind, that can create a life of righteousness? So do you go to God's word? Do you go to prayer regularly? God has promised blessing through the exercise of prayer. Jesus says it in this very discourse in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 6. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What is the reward that we can expect? Earthly riches? Success? No. Life in the kingdom of God. Learning about the appetite that we actually have for the bread of life and growing in our ability to know it and grow in it. So do you go to God's word? Do you go to prayer? Do you go to worship? Do you attend to the assembly of God's people? Sitting under the proclamation of the word and sacrament is a patient, faith-filled expectation that God is sanctifying you and fitting you for heaven conforming you to Christ's image. We are confident in the, thing that, in the things that God commands us to do because that's where we can expect to find the blessing of Christ by the power of the Spirit. So do we attend to worship? Do we sit under the regular preaching of God's word? Do we believe that this is how God will feed us? So do you go where you expect to find righteousness? And then finally, do you accept the discipline and the chastening of God? Do you accept the trials of life because you understand that these things bring you along in holiness? Hebrews chapter 12 says this, God disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Do you accept the discipline and the chastening of God because you say, by this God is making me holier. That he is refining me of something that is unacceptable to him. What's your attitude towards those things, towards the discipline of God? The other side, what is your attitude towards the trials of life, which can be very difficult and agonizing? But God says all things work together for his glory and for our good. So do we accept them because he's making us to share in his holiness? Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied or they shall be filled. So we see really emerging a threefold satisfaction, just as we close very quickly. First, what are we satisfied in? We're satisfied to hear the message of the gospel of grace. There is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You hunger and thirst for that which you could never produce on your own, and you are satisfied to hear that message of forgiveness. We are satisfied... Also to see the Spirit's ongoing chiseling away of our rough edges. We are satisfied as we have this assurance which varies in degrees in our lives and varies from person to person. But if we attend to it and are attentive to it, we will see it, we will know it. We are satisfied to see God working on us. Conforming us to the image of Christ. So do you sense that your love is abounding more and more? Your outer self may be wasting away as your inner self being renewed day by day. You are satisfied if you see and you know those things. But we are especially filled with hope 
that one day, the last day, we will be set free from sin. We were made for righteousness. So what we were made to know and to glory in is not just the message of forgiveness that is glorious, not just the ongoing work of the Spirit that that is glorious as well, but one day we will be fully set free from the curse, sin, and death. All the power of indwelling sin will be banished forever, and there will be nothing but righteousness in God's kingdom forever and ever. We will be set free from sin and made perfectly righteous. And that day will not be glorious because we will have found ourselves or we achieve something for ourselves that we've always wanted, but it will be glorious because we will be satisfied to see our King. Psalm 17, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. The New Testament twin of that verse could possibly be 1 John, verse, 1 John 3, verse 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. When he appears, we shall be like him. What is Jesus like? He is righteous. He is holy. He is without sin. We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. To hunger and thirst after righteousness is to hunger and thirst for Jesus Christ in every facet, a righteousness of possession, a righteousness of position, a righteousness of fully being set free at the last day. Hunger and thirst to see him because that is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Let's pray. Great God and Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for these truths. We are grateful to have known and heard them. We ask that you would create in us a desire for all of these things. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the truth of your ongoing work in us. And we praise you for the day uh, that is to come where sin, rebellion will be done away with forever. Would you purge those things from us even now that we would long to be righteous, that to see you create that in us. We know it will always be a struggle, but give us that hunger, that taste for these things through the power of the Spirit. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.